thank you ladies for leading us. See, I always tell Chris I can get up here by 9.15. He never quite believes me, but I'm here. Uh, you see in your bulletin that no Kids Connection today. It's the first Sunday of the month, and we uh, don't offer Kids Connection on that Sunday. But beginning next Sunday, we get back into Kids Connection for the fall. There are some needs there. That's a strategic ministry. It's a way that we minister to families and minister uh, to our little ones here in worship, pre-K and kindergartners. So, And those are sort of the pre-readers, the ones that maybe need a little bit of attention, need some transition into corporate worship with their whole family. If you could give any time to Kids Connection over the course of this semester or this year, Contact Jan Fry. She would greatly appreciate your involvement and uh, the families of those with, with uh, four- and five-year-olds, I know, would as well. All right. Starting a new sermon series today. It's called The Core. Core values. What are core values? Stated or not, all organizations have core values. Core values are the ideas or the priorities or the primary practices that guide an organization's mission. So the organization has a mission, and they carry it out in accordance with their values. These are their core values. The organization could be a company or a college or a church. Really, anything organized can have expressed core values. For instance, Walmart. Walmart is the world's largest retailer. The core value at the top of the list for Walmart is this, and you're going to recognize it when I say it, everyday low prices. That's of utmost importance to Walmart, and I would say they do a pretty good job of sticking to that value, everyday low prices. That's what Walmart values. Southwest Airlines, our own Daniel Silk just got hired by Southwest Airlines this week. I don't know if you knew that. Southwest's primary value as a company is, you may know, the customer experience. And how does that core value shape Southwest? Well, they make it a point to hire outgoing, enthusiastic, and friendly people, people like Daniel Silk. And they do that because they see the biggest factor in enhancing the customer experience, that value that they have, the biggest factor in that is having the right employees. Volvo, the car maker Volvo, They have an overriding core value that is obvious if you know anything about Volvos. They don't make the fastest cars. They don't make the best-looking cars. They don't make the most reliable cars. What do they manufacture, though? The safest cars on the road. They value safety above everything else. And so their cars are always at the top of the crash uh, test ratings and the safety ratings. And you may be saying, "Well, well, isn't this core value talk just... Isn't that just importing corporate ideas into the church? Why does our church need to recognize its core values? We're a church. We're not a business. You know, this seems sort of slick and and unnecessary. Well, I don't think so. Remember, virtually every organization, expressed or not, has core values. Even a family has core values. Even a family, your family, the family you grew up in, the family maybe now that you're building, maybe they haven't stated them, but they're there. For instance, the core values in our home, in the home that Mandy and I are building, there's about four of them. There might be a few more than that, but I was cross-referencing these with her yesterday. I think our core values are grace. We really value grace. Yes, we have rules. Yes, we have consequences and discipline and all of that, But at the same time, we intentionally work against legalism and against condemnation because we want grace to rule at our home. We value honesty. 
So hopefully grace is so pervasive in our home that telling the truth is never scary. Most people lie because of fear, fear of rejection, fear of shame, fear of condemnation. Those are all things that are antithetical to grace, so we value honesty. Fun. We want to laugh and be goofy and play games and have lots of jokes and YouTube videos and play lots of sports as a family. We value fun. We want to have fun. But then at the same time, we also value authority. As a family, we submit fully to God's Word. Scripture is our authority, which means Mandy is submissive to my servant leadership as the husband, and the kids are submissive to our parental leadership. It's very important that everyone recognizes who has ultimate authority. That starts with God and trickles down through His Word and gives us mandates to follow. Those are the core values in our home, grace, honesty, fun, and, and authority. And there might be one or two more. We haven't posted them on the refrigerator. They're not sitting over the mantelpiece, but they're pretty pervasive, and they definitely shape life at the Reisner house. So let me connect all this to the church now. About three years ago, soon after my arrival here at Enid Enby Church, I began talking with our leadership council about what the church considered to be its core values. And I don't want to bore you with the conversation we had over aspirational values and functional values and all the details that went into that original discussion. But what happened as, as that extended conversation went on is that we scaled the stated values that the church had written down, the church had written down something like 19 core values, which is pretty funny when you think about it. 19 core values. How you, how you can have 19 things at the very core is uh, kind of missing the mark. But they'd written all 19 of them down, and so we scaled it back from 19 to 3. Felt like 3 we could memorize. 3 could stick in the minds of our people. 3 was Trinitarian, so maybe that sort of made it holy. And so about that time, we began articulating these values. We started saying that Enid Enby Church values the gospel, people, and mission. Now, we may may value more than that, but we concluded that those values are sort of the irreducible core of our church. Those are the primary values that will guide ministry and and inform decision-making here at Enid Enby. And so we recite them almost every week, and we put them on the front of the bulletin, and we put them on our website. Those are the core values. But at the same time, we've never really taken the time to dig into them. I've never put handles on them for you as a congregation to grab a hold of. So that's the burden behind the next nine sermons at Enid Enby Church. From now to the end of September, we're going to unpack our core values. And what catalyzed this for me to go ahead and do this is back in April, we had Senior Sunday, a Youth Sunday. And Thomas Friesen got up here and did the welcome. And he went through the whole spiel of our core values. And I'm like, wow, this is starting to stick. Like people are hearing this every week and it's sort of in their minds. Let's do something with this. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend three weeks talking about the gospel. So today we're going to talk gospel doctrine. Next week we're going to talk gospel power. And then in week three, I want to show show you the importance of a gospel culture in a church. And then we're going to spend three weeks talking about people, loving people and connecting people and growing people and the, the importance of the church as a people, not a place. And then in September, we'll spend three weeks discussing mission. 
So rather than have a single mission Sunday in the fall like we've had in the past, we're going to have three of them in a row. And we'll talk about the biblical basis for mission and global missions and local missions, gospel, people, mission. That's the next nine weeks. And then in October, we're going to start a study of the book of Titus. But today, it's gospel doctrine. And our text is found in John chapter 3. Turn there and give your attention to verse 16. That's right, John three sixteen. For God so loved, oh, I should say this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is God's word. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the Bible in miniature. But nothing about this verse is small. This might be, and I don't think you'd argue with me on this, this might be the greatest verse in all the Bible. The greatest verse. For God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest generosity, the world, the greatest tragedy, that he gave the greatest gift, his only son, the greatest sacrifice, that whoever, so the greatest openness, believes the greatest simplicity, in him the greatest attraction, should not perish the greatest rescue, but the greatest difference, have the greatest possession, eternal life the greatest experience. The greatest thing about this verse is that it tells you comprehensively how to be saved. But there are at least two ways that we could miss out on all that greatness in John 3.16. One of the ways is to think, well, of course God loves me. He ought to love me. I make good choices. I come to church. I do my part. And that way of thinking will drive you into the ditch on this side of the road. But another way to miss out on the greatness of John 3.16 is to think, God can't love me. God must despise me. I'm so disappointed in myself. What, what must God think of someone as worthless and screwed up as me? And that's sort of the ditch on the other side of the road. So both pride and despair block out the love of God. Both pride and despair distort the gospel that is so important to the life of a church but the balance is found here, John three sixteen. We get all the greatness. Let's go there right now. We'll just go through this familiar verse, phrase by phrase, three primary statements in John three sixteen that just highlight, bring forth, put in neon lights the gospel that we so dearly value. First, for God so loved the world. And this verse doesn't just start with God's love. This verse starts with God, for God. Who is this God? The word God is so familiar to us that we might gloss over it, sort of just blow past it to get to the good stuff, but we need to think about what is meant by God because it really is the good stuff. Because think about it this way. None of us in this room this morning has ever had a single thought about God that was fully fair to the magnitude of who he really is. 
Even this morning, as I talk about God for the next couple of minutes, I'll be using finite language from my finite mind in an effort to explain what? An infinite being. I'll just just barely scratch the surface. It's like describing a Rembrandt with a two-word vocabulary. Just don't get very far. But I want you to try to forget... I just want you to forget everything for just a moment. Stop thinking about your grocery list or what's in the crock pot or or your afternoon project. And let's think about God. Because as A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So clear your mind. Go back to the beginning. Where did you get your idea of God How do you know that you didn't make it up? Is a long white beard involved in any way? What do you think about when you think about God? And I know I don't I I can't give you a physical description of God, but I do know the gospel, it gloriously displays God for us. And the thing about the gospel is it displays a God that we would have never conceived of or imagined on our own, a God far beyond what we would naturally think, even opposite to what we would naturally think. For instance, early in the Bible, in Genesis, God says, I am God Almighty. Almost no one believes that God is truly Almighty. Almighty means absolutely sovereign and ruling over all things, every last thing, every molecule in existence. Almost no one believes God is that almighty, which is exactly why God said it. I am God almighty. Yet we hear, I am God almighty, and if God actually gives us eyes to see that, and we actually start to believe the implications of all of that, when that pebble sort of falls into our mental pool, the ripples begin to move out into all directions, and what happens is this, we're never the same. We start to really think through and apply and, and, and this idea of I am God Almighty, we, we step into the wonder of that, and wow, blows our world open. How, how about in the beginning, God? In the beginning, first phrase in the Bible, in the beginning, God. Where did God come from? Who thought him up? No one. He was there in the beginning. But then what about before that? Before what? Before the beginning, well, there was no before that. There was only God and his glorious eternal existence. And he created a beginning. But, but what did he create the beginning out of? Nothing. He created with his voice, with his word. There was, there was no vast universe with, with billions in, uh, of stars and galaxies and light years and dense matter. There was none of that until God spoke. And it's uncomfortable to talk about the sheer almightiness of God, but if you're going to talk about the Christian gospel, you have to start with God. The God who said, let there be light, and then there was light. The gospel starts with the biggest, most powerful, only infinite being ever. It begins with Almighty God, who amazingly does not despise the world or think the world to be beneath his vast interests. He, this infinite, almighty God, he actually loves the world. 
He loves the world. And we're not doing a comprehensive study of John's gospel in this series, but it's worth pointing out that this verse, John 3.16, this is the first time in John's gospel that we find the word love. This gospel uses the word love about 57 times, more than twice the amount of any other New Testament book, except for maybe 1 John, which, same author, John the Apostle. John the Apostle is usually called the apostle that Jesus loved. He was, he was fixated on the love of God. He knew better than anyone what was meant by the love of God. And not just, not just theoretically or, or categorically, John really knew what it meant to be loved by God. That's why he wrote about it all the time, more than anyone else. So given the author and given John's fixation on the love of God and given the scale of this God we call God and his extreme capacity to love, given his scale, given all those factors, don't just assume you believe John 3.16. You memorized it when you were six years old. It's the one verse that will never leave you, but you need to examine whether or not you really believe John 3.16. You really... You need to determine if you really do believe that God loves you. And part of what is required to actually believe John 3.16 is getting out of our minds the false idea that God is cranky. We have to crush the idea that God is an ill-humored deity who who sort of does his business one way with vengeance and with wrath. But then then nice Jesus came along and somehow persuaded you know, not nice God to, to cut us some slack. No. Our redemption started in the heart of God. For God so loved the world. His love is not reluctant. No, it's aggressive and it's proactive and it's overt. But why did God love us? Why? Because the Bible says God is love. The Bible never actually says God is wrath. He's capable of wrath, but his core being is not wrath. He is love. We have to provoke him to wrath, but we don't have to prod him into loving us. He is love. He's the first mover in that category. Love flows out of him. Love is who God is. Love dominates the supreme being who who created and governs all of this, all of this universe. Do we realize who we're involved with? when we read John 3.16. Have we really swallowed this verse whole? Part of taking it in, part of understanding the gospel is seeing how great God is. But also by seeing the greatness of God's love is is measured by the word at the end of the opening phrase there. For God so loved the world. So God doesn't just love virtuous people. God doesn't just love people who belong to a favored group. No, God loves the world. And John's point in this section is not, he's not telling us, man, isn't God's love great because the world is really big? Like, you know, like a big world should impress us that that this God, this infinite God can love it. No, It's not how big the world is that that, that John's underscoring here by saying God loves the world. It's how bad the world is. Glance down at verse 19 there in your Bible. 
The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We do terrible things in the darkness, but God sees everything. And that place of darkness and hypocrisy is the world that God is so loving. Yes, we're all nice people here this morning, but in actuality, you read the Scriptures We're evil people who love the darkness. We're the world. We're the hypocrites who hate the light. But at the same time, we're the world whom God has so loved. And so how did God prove or demonstrate his love? Well, he asks nothing of us, which makes sense. How could those who love the darkness, those who would rather hide from him, do anything to earn his love? How did he prove? Look at the second phrase in your notes. We see how he proved it, how he loved us. He gave us his only son. So God is a giver. He's given us a suitable creation to live in, beautiful in many respects. He's given us bodies with with sort of magical self-healing powers, minds that can create and solve problems, relationships that make life rich. He's given us art and music that sort of add to all that richness. I could go on and on and on. But all these earthly gifts of God, what do they do? They, they come and they go. So if we base God's, or if we base our confidence in God's love on our health or on our safety or on any of these other gifts that are sort of tied to the moment, we'll never be sure of God. If we, if we only think God loves us when we're sort of hashtag blessed, we'll never be sure of God and his love. So God revealed his love with such finality that we can know for keeps that he loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now it's starting to get nailed down. God did not loan us his son. He gave him, and he gave him all the way up when he gave him at the cross. John Flavel. Flavel was a Puritan pastor from centuries ago. He described Jesus like this. He said, Christ infinitely transcends the most excellent of created beings. Whatever loneliness is found in them, it is not without a distasteful tang. The fairest pictures must have their shadows. The rarest and most brilliant gems must have dark backgrounds to set off their beauty. The best creature is but a bittersweet at best. If there is something pleasing, there is also something distasteful. If a person has every excellence to delight us, yet there is also some natural corruption intermixed with it to put us off. But it is not so in our altogether lovely Christ. His excellencies are pure and unmixed. He is a sea of sweetness without one drop of gall. There's nothing about Jesus that we need to filter out. We can receive him with, 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 with openness, and Jesus is the commitment that God has made to our world, our tragic world. The Bible says God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. Or 1 John 4, 9, again, the apostle writing, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. Notice in those verses, it's God initiating, it's God revealing, it's God displaying and showing us what kind of lover he is. We're not groping for God. No, he's stooping and he's showing us and he's wooing us and he's revealing to us. 
Ray Ortland Jr. says this about God's love in Christ. He, he writes this in his book called The Gospel, a short little book. He says, this is the massive love of God, Jesus the Son, leaving nothing of the Father's glory unexpressed, leaving nothing of our need unfulfilled, opening up the mighty heart of God to the unworthy. This is the massive love of God. In a, in a, similar, in a similar quotation, Jonathan Edwards He once wrote, the death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God. It was the outgushing of that ocean of infinite mercy that heaved and panted and longed for an outlet. It was God showing how he could love a poor, guilty sinner. What more could he have done than this? Every hope in life is based explicitly or implicitly on how we on how deserving we are. Every other hope of life. Only the Christian gospel is based clearly, boldly, and insistently on how loving God is to those who don't deserve it. If you have shocked yourself with the evil that you are capable of and have often given up on yourself, the God of love waits for you with open arms. That's his love. And when we finally sort of abandon our pretenses and open up to the love of God, we always find his love right where God himself put it, in his only son, in Jesus Christ alone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's nothing restrained about that love. So here's our part, last phrase, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, whosoever, in some of the older translations, that's a broad word. Anyone, however terrible, can believe and have eternal life. Whoever means anybody. It's a pretty broad qualifier. But the destination options are very narrow. Perishing and eternal life. Those are the only options in front of us here. Every one of us will go one way or the other, and we know it. We, we, we know we weren't created to perish. That's why it's so offensive to think about. We were created to live and thrive and flourish. That's why we long to live. That's why death is so painful and confusing and frustrating and hard. We were made to live, yet we are all very perishable. And what's worse, we, we deserve to perish. The wages of sin is death. And every one of us, we've sinned habitually. We know we should be kind, but we rarely are. We know we should be just, but we've been, all of us, we've been selfish and cruel. We know we're not to lie, but we do so out of fear. Above all else, we should love God and live for Him, but we all too often run from God, or we blame God as if He were the problem. We deserve to perish what does it look like for us to perish? Well, perishing is a destination called hell. Hell is for people who could, who, who could have had the love of God but held back. The Bible says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, that is perishing. But Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live, and he died the guilty death we deserve to die. He's clearing the way for God to lavish love on people who did not first love him. 
All God asks of us, all we can do to keep from perishing and lay hold of eternal life is open up and receive him. Receive his massive love. That's our part. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him. That word for for, for believe, that's that's our way back into the love of God. We can't deserve him, but we can have him by believing in him. What then does the word believe really mean? That's the most crucial question in your life ever. What does it mean to believe in Jesus as God's only son? The Apostle John never uses the noun faith. I don't know if you knew that. He never uses the noun faith. He only uses in his gospel and in his epistles the verb believe. And he actually uses it in a whole new way. Never before in Greek literature did anyone use the word believe the way John uses the word believe. And here's what that means. Our English Bible says whoever believes in him. But a a literal translation is whoever believes into him. That's how we get out of our pride and our despair, by opening up so that our defenses go down and we get into him. And so maybe you believe in Jesus the wrong way. You're like, well, what do you mean, the wrong way? Well, many people believe in Jesus the way they believe in, like, the free enterprise system. That is to say, I agree with it. I like it. It's my preference. But that mentality doesn't connect with the attitude of John 3.16. John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved this evil world that he gave the sacrificial gift of his only son so that we could say, sure, that's what I believe in, along with, you know, baseball and apple pie. The the massive love of God in Christ Jesus calls for far more than just sort of mild agreement So John obviously means something more when he says believe. He tells us actually here in his gospel exactly what he means by believe. John 1, 11 and 12, his own people did not receive him, speaking of Jesus, but to all who did receive him, who believed into his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So believing is is connected to receiving. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes into me shall never thirst. So believing is coming. Believing into Jesus equals receiving him, coming to him. To believe is to know our hearts are turning and receiving and moving toward Jesus. We don't just give mental assent. It's not mere agreement. It's finding and wanting ourselves to be in Christ. Therefore, gospel doctrine is not a box we check or a statement we affirm. It's a recognized union with Christ. When I believe into Christ, I stop hiding and resisting and pretending. In response to the good news of all he has done, I hurl myself at Christ because he is my only hope, and I want to find myself in him. I I come to a place where, where I say I want to really be forgiven of my real sins by a real Savior. God's final category for us is not our goodness versus our badness, but our union with Christ versus our distance from Christ. In other words, what matters most to God is whether we are bonded by faith with His Son. 
Not faith as a noun, but faith as a verb. Do we believe? That's the, that's the overarching theme of the Bible. Believe, faith, trust, dependence. Not just assent, not just mild agreement, but union with God through Christ. That's what leads into verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Can we all admit it? Being saved is kind of embarrassing. Who wants to be saved? You know, we all want to say, you know, I've got this. I can handle this. I'm sufficient for this. Fortunately, that doesn't stop God. He came to rescue us. To rescue us. To, to be rescued is to be weak. It's to be incapable. And we try all sorts of ways to try and do things ourselves, but our pride only highlights the grace of his mission. Proud people don't want to be saved. But that's exactly who God's pursuing today. For that's all there are as proud people. That's all there are. It doesn't take long in a relationship to realize the pride that's there. It's our union with Christ that's highlighted at the communion table. And so that's what we're going to enter into here in just a moment. I'm going to ask our deacons to go ahead and come forward as we prepare to serve the Lord's Supper. If you've been here with us before, you know how we do this. I should say that we practice open communion here at Enid MB Church, which means you don't need to be a member of our church to take communion with us today. I would remind you, however, that you do need to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You need to have that union with Christ. These elements are a visual expression of Christ's saving work in us and for us. It's for those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, for those who have trusted in Him as the one to to give freedom from, from sin and from death. So if you've not trusted in Christ you are welcome to just watch as we observe this together. Don't be uncomfortable with that. It's, it's totally fine. If this is your first time to take communion here at Enidibi Church, we'll pass an element out. You'll hold it, and then we'll take it together, and I'll direct you to do so. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it. Let's pray for the bread. Father, here we have a picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. His perfect life lived in human flesh. Righteousness on display for all to see. God, we thank you for the life of Christ that we read in the scriptures. And we know that his righteous life can be applied to us. That our unrighteousness can be covered by his perfection. We thank you for the life of Christ. We thank you for this bread. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sacrificed your life so I could live. Nothing. 
cross that you have carried Cry.